So, well, today we're speaking on perseverance. And let's see what year. I'm going to say, I think it was about 2010, a friend of mine who had graduated from Furman a year before I had and had become Furman's FCA coordinator, Fellowship of Christian Athletes, asked me if I would be a huddle leader at an FCA captain's camp over in uh, Spartanburg at USC Upstate. Now, a captain's camp is where FCA tells all the teams in an area, really anybody that knows about the camp who can you know, feasibly drive to it, and says, these are high schoolers, and says, send us your captains, your team captains. And this can be football, tennis, baseball. It doesn't matter the sport. But they say, you know, don't send us your third string tight end who like, is really, like, just loves Jesus and really just shares the gospel with people but never plays and doesn't really lead. Send us your team captains, whether they're believers or not. And, and I had never heard of this camp when he, had, when he had asked me to do it, but it'd get me out of some summer workouts for like two days. <laughs> I was like, yes, sign me up. And the other huddle leaders were, it was an offensive lineman from the Citadel, so he and I gave each other a hard time, but he was really cool. Uh, a guy who played on, it was a captain on Clemson's basketball team, uh, one, two girls that played softball for USC Upstate. So the, the huddle leaders, we were a mix and match of different sports at different colleges around the area. Well, we get, we get there, and the, the captain, so everybody shows up. You know, they're, they're coaches, and a lot of times their dads are dropping them off, and, you know, they all get out of their, the cars, and they're all like, how's it going? Like, hey, you, uh, you're Jimmy? Yes, yeah, me. What sport? Football. Cool, you're a team captain. Would I be here if I wasn't? All right, All right. glad to have you. Oh, look, you're in my huddle. I'm Will. And so they got there, and there was a lot of just a lot of cockiness. But we took them to that camp. We went and had like a little bit of a dinner, like a, a lunch, an afternoon snack, because lunch was snack, check-in was like one. Had an afternoon snack. Our first meeting where we all got together and we heard the gospel and just had like a little bit of preaching and then began the competitions and we broke these kids off it was awesome like even even the the huddle leaders didn't really know what we were getting into until they revealed the schedule and the whole purpose of this camp was to break these leaders down to dust basically just push them to the limit and then build them back up and it was amazing so it's this was uh, mid-June, so it was hot, and so we're out there on this big field out beside one of USC Upstate's buildings, and we're out there, and it's all competition-based, you know, so each huddle is competing against other huddles, but it's all relays, and so you have to flip a giant tractor tire for 100 yards, and then your friend on the other side has to flip it back, and then they're like, oh, good, water break, and we're like, in the whistle, I mean, the air horn sounds, and we're like, next station, so we run them to the next station, and they're like, no break? We're like, no. So we do that for like two hours. And then we're like, all right, let's go to dinner. And they're like, oh, yeah, we're done. And then we get done with dinner and we're like, back out there. And so then from like seven to nine, we had a, uh, we, we, we hit them again. By this point, it's dark and we have just like a few lights set up. Um, and then they had one rest station in the rotation. And that was when they had to memorize verses similar to like Philippians 3, you know, uh, 419. Wow, I just forgot the verse. You know, I can do all things through God who strengthens me. And, and if they didn't memorize it, then their team was down a man until they could memorize it and get back out into the mix. So then at about 10, we took another break, and they're like, 
bedtime. And then we're like, everybody up, we're going to the pool. And so then we did like pool training exercises until about 2 a.m. So we finished about 3 a.m. And these guys have been, and girls have been going for about 12 hours straight. It was amazing. I'll never forget uh, one of my guys, we were, we, we, we were down a man because he had cramped twice in the pool and had, ha- and had to have the lifeguard go in twice after him. We were down a man. He couldn't swim anymore. And so one of our guys, we were short of relay, and the, neck, the last leg was rolling up. And I'm like, guys, we need somebody because and, and, we, we couldn't compete. I would have, but we were not allowed to compete. They're all laid out. And this one kid gets up. He's like, I'll do it. He walks over, hurls into the trash can, wipes his mouth, turns around, Dives in the pool right as our, his guy, our next teammate, slapped the edge, and he went in. And it was just awesome watching these guys just get broken down to nothing because a lot of these guys had never been pushed like that. But the fun part was that there weren't coaches screaming at them, telling them how awful they were and, like, you're terrible and you're pathetic. You know, we're like, hey, you can do this. Don't quit. Don't stop. This is awful. Yes, it is. But, you know, don't quit. And sometimes we'd have to pause the games and pull them together and be like, hey, look, you can't be talking to the refs like this. You can't be. It was, it was awesome. And so we went to bed around three, and the team with the fewest amount of points, my team, had to get up the earliest. So we had to be up at about 5.30. So we got about two and a half hours of sleep, and then we did a mile and a half long relay around the entire USC Upstate campus. And then, and that involved, you know, all sorts of stuff. And you had to carry this 200-pound log the whole way with your team. Um, so when, when, when all was said and done, they did this through the whole rest of the day, and then we all, you know, collapsed that afternoon. But it was, I was, that's still one of the most fun camps I was ever a part of. It was so much fun to just watch these guys and girls just be pushed beyond their limits. And I was really proud of them because, for the most part, they didn't give up. It was really interesting because you could see some guys and girls, they, you could see them quit. But... Then the guys beside them wouldn't let them. They'd grab them and say, come on, like we're all in this together. If they were good leaders, they'd say, we're in this together. If they were bad leaders, they'd say, if you don't get up, we're all going to kill you. I saw both. Um, but yeah, so all of these competitors persevered through this, even though they couldn't see the why of it, because we didn't tell them it was a competition until about halfway through. They just thought that they had just suddenly been dropped into a boot camp. They didn't know what was happening. And that was all kind of part of the plan. But, you know, it just kind of underscored that in today's instant society, uh, the ability to endure, to just, you know, endure hardship if you can't see the end is uh, kind of hard to come by. And for us, it's really helpful to look to Scripture for examples on how to handle these situations. So today we'll be exploring one of the Psalms. And the the Hebrew name for this collection of writings is, uh, means praises or songs of praises, which kind of sums up their overarching purpose pretty well. Different psalms would focus on different aspects of humans' relationships with God, but the intent of the whole collection was to act as a vehicle for praising Him. How many times have you been struggling to express an emotion, and then you hear a certain song on the radio, and then it just kind of connects, and you're like, ah, I can finally express, I can articulate what I'm going through. That's the purpose of the psalms. They're meant to just be connectors to what, how we can just really bring our lives before God and kind of lay it out there and let him move on us and work on us. So today's psalm, Psalm 129, comes from a special group of psalms called the Psalms of Ascent. While the actual reason of this name is 
still up for debate by biblical scholars, the most widely held belief is that these were pilgrimage songs, songs for the journey. Uh, they were sung by Jews who were coming to Jerusalem from different places around the ancient world to attend the various festivals that were mandated by the law of Moses. So Jerusalem sits on top of a hill, so the final leg of the journey, no matter which direction they were coming from, would always be an ascent. That's the name, the Songs of Ascent. Um, these psalms tended to be very reflective. You know, the people would be reflecting on what God had done for Israel, uh, how he'd always come through for them, and they would be praising him for his faithfulness. Uh, and this really prepared the people's heart for the worship that they would be bringing forth when they got to the city for the festival. Um, and Psalm 129 is a song about perseverance in faith and was a very fitting psalm for this, for this journey. So before we dive in, say a quick prayer and then we'll hit the text and we'll go from there. Father, we thank you that uh, you never change. You know, you're always faithful and you don't give up on us. And we thank you that uh, even when things are not going as well as we like, even when we don't understand that you always you know, give us your presence and you never abandon us, Father. And we just thank you for your faithfulness and for the fact that that is part of your nature and that we can never escape it even if we want to. Father, just bless my words today. Uh, if it is not of you, anything not of you, Father, I pray that it, it goes unheard. The things that are of you, I pray that they take root and that you just you grow them and pour your living water upon them. We thank you and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So today's text is from Psalm 129. And that is not a Bible app. There we go. Okay. And it should be up on the board. Perfect. A Song of Ascents. They have greatly oppressed me from my youth, let Israel say. They have greatly oppressed me from my youth, but they have not gained the victory over me. Plowmen have plowed my back and made their furrows long. For the Lord is righteous. He has cut me free from the cords of the wicked. May all who hate Zion be turned back in shame. May they be like grass on the roof, which withers before it can grow. A reaper cannot fill his hands with it, nor one who gathers fill his arms. May those who pass by not say to them, The blessing of the Lord be on you. We bless you in the name of the Lord. That's, there's a lot going on in that, but it really boils down to life is tough. When I was working on this sermon, I googled life is tough quotes, and I got several pages of results. Uh, the contributors ranged from people like uh, Kim and Kylie Kardashian, whose quotes I don't put much stock in, to others like Abraham Lincoln and Frederick Do Douglass, who had some really insightful things to say. Uh, you know, people know life is hard, and so they try to come up with ways to kind of encapsulate their experiences and pass that wisdom along to the next generation. But for all of the celebrities and self-help coaches that write these pithy statements, the truth of life being tough is nothing new. Neither are inspirational quotes. The Psalms and the Proverbs have been used for thousands of years to encourage people. They carry much more relatability and applicability than when the going gets tough, the tough get going. What does that really mean? Um, so let's look at today's text. And Psalm 129 begins, you know, many times they have persecuted me from my youth up. You know, the nation of Israel, the group of people, is being described as a person being bullied. How many of you were bullied as a kid? Uh, a school bully can take an idyllic childhood and make it hell. You know, it can make a very simple life 
tough. You can't tell it now, but when I was in like five and six years old, I had this long hair down past my shoulders. And I went to a baseball camp put on by my local high school one summer. And the first day, they just unmercifully berated me. We were like, oh, look at this girl. Is acting, you know, this girl's with the long hair. And so that, I came home that night and was like, Mom, I want to cut my hair. So she cut it, and it's been short ever since. Um, in all honesty, I don't actually remember all of that happening, but my mom does, and moms remember that kind of thing. But that matches up, because all, all, after that summer, all my pictures were of short hair. But um, that's just a small example of how, uh, even when you're a kid, like, life isn't necessarily easy. Uh, even as children, we have hardship, and it never really eases up from there. Life always has some sort of strain and, and struggle. Um, Life being difficult is a truth that we just have to acknowledge at some point. However, we can't go through life, you know, moping and complaining in a fatalistic, sad way. You know, the truth is, being followers of Jesus, we are to exhibit the total opposite trait and live a life filled with hope. You know, life is tough, but hope is tougher. You know, and hope is tougher. Um, the next line in the psalm say, Let Israel say, Many times they have persecuted me from my youth up, yet they have not prevailed against me. You know, Israel and the, the individual people of Israel uh, did not give up during the tough times. Under the terrible rule of Ahab and Jezebel, when things were just really awful in uh, Israel, the prophet Elijah was sitting in a creek bed saying, God, let me die because I'm the only one left here who is faithful. And it took the, and, but then the Lord had to reveal to him, says, there's actually thousands of people who have not bent the knee to these two who still worship me. Um, you know, many endured great hardships under Ahab and Jezebel, but they refused to give up. They refused to give in to them. You know, hope is stubborn, like a weed, and like a weed, it should be very hard to kill. And see, this hope is concrete, unlike the more modern definition of how many people conceive of hope. So in Webster's Dictionary, hope is defined as to want something to happen or be true. Many times people say things like, I hope it doesn't rain this weekend, or I hope my number one fantasy draft pick doesn't get hurt the first game of the season. You know, it's just really more of a, yeah, these two guys over here are like, yeah, I know. <laughs> um, you know, that's really more of a wishful thinking, longing kind of concept. You know, we think of something we would really like to happen, and then we wish it to be true at a certain place or time. Uh, when most people use the word hope, this is kind of what they mean. You know, it's an us-centric idea. We are the core. We are the focal point of this concept. You know, I hope all this happens because it'll work out for me. If we are the focal point of our hope, then when life gets difficult, you know, and the darkness of just evilness and just pain overshadows us, we are immobilized and we have nowhere else to turn. You know, our hope is extinguished and that's it. Because if we're overshadowed, we have, and our hope rests in us, we cannot bring it forth from there. Biblical hope, the kind found within Psalm 129, is fundamentally different. The second definition given by Webster, down below that first one, says, archaic, trust. And beyond that, to expect with confidence. Now, it may be old-fashioned, but our hope, the hope of believers, is 
a confident expectation. It takes the focus off of us because it depends on another for our rescue. And I hope this works out for me because it'll help me, but it's dependent upon someone else. In this case, it's dependent upon the Father. When you think of the people or the objects or a principle that you have confidence in, that you know, we have confidence, confidence in, the common denominator is most likely going to be that this has never let us down. Whatever this idea or, or person or thing is, it's, it's come through for us. You know, your friend may be reliable to always show up when you need a hand with something. Your lawnmower may crank even if you didn't store it away, away really well through the winter. You know, the principle of always telling the truth in your life may have borne good fruit. When we have a history with something that doesn't let us down, we develop a trust for it. Our basis for hope is built upon this principle. Israel had the Exodus event when God freed them from 400 years of slavery, broke the power of Pharaoh, and set things to right. They always looked back upon that. The psalmist was looking back on this great moment in Israel's history, expecting that God to move on his behalf because God had already moved on Israel's behalf. You know? Israel had been tormented from its childhood, so to speak, but it was trusting in God to right that wrong. But here's where it really starts to get uncomfortable. You know, last week, Billy was talking about barrier-breaking faith. And one of the points he made was that barrier-breaking faith requires long commitment and faithful obedience. Barrier-breaking faith and hope are opposite sides of the same coin. You can't have one without the other. Sometimes hope requires long commitment and faithful obedience. The psalmist writes, The plowers plowed upon my back. They lengthened their furrows. That's pretty poetic imagery here if you think about it. Whether in person or on television, we've all seen what a plow does to the soil. It slices down into it and you know, lifts it over onto itself, leaving a small trench called a furrow. Now, in this context, imagine this is happening to someone's back. Yeah, to their flesh. You know, the plowmen are slowly lengthening the gouges in the flesh of the author's back, inch by inch. I mean, that's, that's pretty brutal. Like, that, that's a pretty brutal image in my mind. If this was a scene in the movie, I would not be watching that movie. I don't do those kind of movies. In addition, you know, plowing is a really slow process. My mom has a modern rototiller, and she has a little quarter-acre garden. She has several gardens, but the one she uses this one on is a little quarter-acre plot, and it still takes her several hours with this modern rototiller to plow it up. This psalm was written at a time when all this was done with a plow being pulled by a draft animal. So it was just slow and steady. in In this visual, the persecutors have already been plowing this guy's back for a while, and they have their first few lines plowed, and now they're coming back and they're making them longer. You know, they're just cutting deeper and deeper and longer and longer into his flesh. Um, And the author has just been enduring all of this. It's a really gross image, and it's very uncomfortable because might we and our comfortable, air-conditioned, Amazon Prime next-day delivery lives have to suffer to this degree? You know, and for this length of time, you know, I, I don't know about y'all, but I would prefer not to have to suffer. I mean, suffering and I don't get along. I can do it if I have to, but really prefer not to. You know, but life is hard and suffering comes. However, along with the warning in this verse about suffering, there's also a great deal of encouragement. Hope perseveres because it, because it recognizes that the brokenness in the world will be made right. What is wrong? 
will be made to right. You know, verses five through eight in this in this verse, you know, make many people, Christians and non Christians, fairly uncomfortable. However, you, we still have to take them into account to be true to the text and to give us an honest reflection of life. It says, you know, may all who hate Zion be turned back in shame. May they be like grass on the roof, which withers before it can grow. A reaper cannot fill his hand with it, nor one who gathers fill his arms. May those who pass by not say to them, The blessing of the Lord be on you. We bless you in the name of the Lord. And these are bitter words. There's great anger and powerful vindictiveness in them. How many of us have gone through hard times and harbored these, these kind of feelings toward the people who have hurt us, uh, toward the situation we're in, or perhaps even towards God? You know, it's a logical response. It doesn't make it the right response, but it's a lot, but it's, you know, when we see it, it's a logical response, and we can't excuse it in the psalmist or in ourselves, but we can't identify with it. You know, we identify with the agonizing frustration of hardship because we know that it is fundamentally wrong. This world is broken from the beautiful design that God created for it. You know, God did not create us to persecute one another. He did not create economies that you know, barely allow full-time workers to stay above water. He did not create abusive substances which you know, enslave minds and ravage bodies. And he created a world intended for family-like community, uh, for labor with purpose, for life-giving provision from the earth. Adam's sin broke God's design. And since that time, it has been God's mission through his people and then culminating in Jesus to redeem it, to fix it. That's why there's so much passion in this psalm. If God had rescued Israel from the agony of Egypt, and the psalmist was expecting God to rescue him from the agony of his current situation. The, the psalmist wasn't just lying on the ground, you know, figuratively speaking, saying, oh, oh, this really hurts, but it's just my life situation right now. No, the psalmist is feeling every inch of that blade in its back, and the whole time he's saying, this is not right. This, sh- this is not how it should be. God has rescued us from evil, evil, I mean, from Egypt, and he will rescue us now. I am ho- going to hold on until he comes and make things right. And in the death and resurrection of Jesus, creation was made right. Even when it doesn't seem like it, God's kingdom has broken into the present. We persevere through hardship because our hopes, because our hope says things will be made right. Things are being made right. God is faithful, and I will hold on until that day. The Apostle Paul had a really good grasp of this truth, and he included it in several of his letters. And uh, some of the more famous ones are in first. 1 Corinthians 15, 58, he writes, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. Then in Romans 5, 3-5, he wrote, And not only this, but we exult in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, and perseverance, proven character, and proven character, hope. And hope does not disappoint, because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit. Who was given to us. Our patient endurance has purpose, and it's not in vain. God will meet us in the hard places, and he will pour his love out in our lives. As a follower of Jesus, when we are in the midst of a dark place, we are to be patient in the journey, but long for the arrival at the destination. We are to endure and acknowledge the pain, but not to accept it. And we are to look at the Lord's past actions as a promise for our future deliverance, and we are to eagerly await the moment he shows up. Because when God shows up, his impact is, um, is unmistakable. 
The Lord is righteous. He has cut in two the cords of the wicked. The Lord shows up and he cuts the straps holding the oxen to the plow, rendering it useless and ending the torment. The plow no longer moving is immediately apparent. God's presence brings relief, rescue, and comfort. Whether immediate or gradual, it's always apparent to the recipient of it. God never leaves his people behind, even though it may seem to take years of pain and hardship that we don't understand. Remember, this psalm was a song sung by pilgrims on the road to Jerusalem, some coming from as far away as places like Spain, North Africa, at that time, the other end of the known world. Um, As they sang this song, they would be remembering the enslavement under Egypt, how God had freed them. In in Jesus' day, they could have also been looking back to the Babylonian exile and been singing the praises to God of his deliverance from Babylon back into Egypt. They undoubtedly would be thinking of whatever hardships the Lord had helped them to endure on the long journey, whether through the blistering sands of North Africa, braving the the sea crossing from Italy to Greece and then on over to Antioch. They were constantly aware of what the Lord had done for them. But as they walked up the hill, approaching the gates of the city, they knew that they had made it. God was faithful and is faithful. And in him, our perseverance is vindicated and our hope is fulfilled. So, uh, worship team, I want to come on back up. Uh, I just, I want to encourage you today, as the worship team comes up and begins to play their final song, just rest, just rest in the moment. Listen to what the Lord is saying. If, If something from today's message really spoke to you, I encourage you to come down and get some prayer from the folks on our prayer team who will be down here on this rug.